Well, today's message is entitled The Word of Christmas here in John chapter 1. We are beginning our Christmas series this morning, perhaps a little bit early. But as I meditated on what I wanted to be preaching on over the next couple weeks, it just dawned on me that I wanted to go in, I wanted to go out through the indoor, not in through the outdoor. This is where we started 19 years ago, the Gospel of John, and I would love for us to spend time in this glorious passage together. This is one of the most amazing passages, if not the most amazing set of verses in all of the Bible. I'm not sure if I can think of another passage that rivals John 1, 1 through 18. This is the Mount Everest in the Scriptures. Um, We said 19 years ago, can we imagine our Bibles without these lines? How impoverished we would be without them. J.C. Ryle says that they are matchless sublimity. These verses really do rise just so gloriously and supernaturally as you're reading them. Imagine reading these lines for the first time. It'd be like some new strange sun that has come up on a different horizon than usual that surprises everybody, and you see this, and it just puts you back on your, on your heels. It rises splendidly out of eternity and steps into time. John 1.1 claims the gospel skies as its own. It sets there in a, in a unique way among Matthew, Mark, Luke, and, and John's gospel. It fills heaven and earth with the glorious majesty of God the Son, The only begotten God, as he's spoken of in verse 18, the word who was with God at the beginning as creation is made, the word who is God, stupendous lines. And John said, we saw his glory. And we know the whole bent of the gospel of John is that we would be uh, brought into that same vision, that you and I would behold that glory that we would join in that light as this sun shines and comes down and touches the earth. A fellow by the name of Richard Clerk says, the earth wondered at Christ's nativity to see a new star in heaven, but heaven might rather wonder to see a new sun on earth. And that is what has taken place when the word who was God was made flesh. Truly, this is that which makes angels wonder and adore at the glory of God. And as the centerpiece is upon this word, God, becoming flesh, everything is then focused upon the incarnation and upon the salvation that God has brought down from heaven for us in his Son. A quick peek then as we look at this chapter over the next couple weeks, kind of acclimate, adjust our eyes for where we are going. We have the word of Christmas in John 1 and uh, and verse 2. You have the life of Christmas in verses 3 and 4. All things came into being through him. In him was life. This is the word of Christmas is the light of Christmas The life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness. Here we have the herald of Christmas, 
John 1, 6 through 8, and the ministry of John the Baptist, so powerful. And again, down in verse 15, who testifies to the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then, remarkably, we find that the Christmas word is rejected and received. That's what is found in 10 through 13. The glory of Christmas is verse 14, the incarnation, as he tabernacles amongst us, having become flesh. The grace of Christmas in verse 16, the fullness of Christmas. Verse 17, new covenant blessings and the miracle of Christmas in John 1.18. But we begin with the word of Christmas. As John opens his book by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he takes up the language of Genesis 1. In the beginning, you expect God created the heavens and the earth. But instead, in the beginning was the word distinct from God and yet God. The word who is a person existing already at the beginning. We read it in the beginning, the word was. The tense of that particular Greek verb has the idea that of, of um, unending um, existence. And verse 2 adds, he was in the beginning with God. He was not separated from God, the Father, when the creation occurred. Something that the Greek myths oftentimes taught, that you would have a separation of these deities. You would have these emergences of God, of God's. That's not what's taking place here. Paul says similar, similarly in Colossians 1, He, Jesus, is before all things, and in him all things consist. And so we see then here that the word, the Lord Jesus, our first point here today, is eternal. In the beginning, the word was already existing. He did not begin to be at Genesis 1.1. He had glory with the Father before the world was, says John 17 in verse 5, when Jesus prays and says, Father, restore to me what I had with you even before time even before space, even before the creation. How long before creation did he have glory and dwell with the Father? Well, there's a problem there. Because there was no time before then. There were no wristwatches back then. How did God possibly keep time when there was no time? Time is a creature. Time began. So here is this eternal status that the Father and the Son possessed together. And he created time, created space. And we think about creation ex nihilo, out of nothing. We really cannot conceptualize nothingness. We just kind of close our eyes and think of darkness or blackness. That's a thing. That's a created thing. That's all we do is experience created things. There was no created thing. Just the creator, Father and Son, and Holy Spirit. He is, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The Word was at the point of creation. The Word is from everlasting to everlasting. And the Word did not set aside His eternality when He became man. The, the, the Son of God did not set aside His deity. He set aside the glory. He continues God and man. And furthermore, the Son of God, the Word, is then, secondly, distinct from God the Father, and yet is one with Him. It goes on here, and this Word that was at the beginning 
was with God. Here is a distinction. He is, he is distinct from God, and yet he is one with him. He's with him. How could John be any clearer? With God was God in the next breath. The Greek word here for with is, is very wonderful. It has the idea of not just being next to, but actually being face to face. I believe it's prosopon, if I remember correctly. It's a picture of full, wonderful fellowship between the two. It's not these two that are just kind of sitting there, not fellowshipping, but greatest fellowship face to face. That's a picture here that the father was never without the son. And the son always with the father. If there is no son, there is no father, you see. If you really believe that the son became a being at creation, then you lose also the eternality of the fatherhood of God. Because he didn't have a son for eternity. But the Bible says, that he says uh, otherwise. So this before us is the mystery of the Trinity. Here is an infinite, eternal, unchangeable, and indescribable witness of one another. We heard it already in John 17. Restore to me the glory with you, Father, from before creation. Um, who other than God could share glory with God? You see. And so Jesus is described as holding this eternal, immense, exhaustive, infinite, and complete matching with God the Father face to face. Who could ever be face to face with God the Father other than God the Son? He is, Hebrews says, the exact representation of the Father's nature. He is the essential radiance of his glory. The Father in bond with the Son, eternally begotten. An effort on the part of John through the Spirit to get across to us just the intimacy of sharing one life together. A metaphor of the full, complete equality of the Father with the Son. That's the shift of metaphor in 118. He is called the only begotten God, not the one and only God. That doesn't fit there. As the NIV and other translations have tried to take monogenes and translate it one and only, boy, it doesn't fit there. Jesus is the one and only God? No, he's the only begotten. The Son has the same nature as the Father. This is a feature from, from the East. When we think in the West of Father, Son, as I see Ben, and I see their oldest son, I see he takes a little bit more after his mom. Am I right in that? Ben shrugs. Who knows? But usually when we think we see father, son, we think of a hierarchy. You know, the father is the authority. That's how we think in the West. We have that kind of orderliness about us. Not so in the East. When you mention father, son, the first thing that comes in an Eastern mind is you have sameness of nature. That's what jumps into the mind in the East. And that's why when Jesus makes himself out to be the Son of God, immediately the Jews knew what he was talking about and they started looking for stones. You, you've made yourself equal with God. How dare you? Well, how dare he? He is equal with God. So, this is the sonship on equality with the Father, having the same nature. Everything that makes the Father to be God makes the Son to be so too. 
so that he who has seen the Son has seen the Father. He is the great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, Titus 2.13. He is the Christ who is overall God-blessed forever, Romans 9, verse 5. Jesus did not count it robbery to be equal with God or to be something to be grasped. It was his by nature, by, by his very existence, Philippians chapter 2, so that every knee would bow and tongue confess that Jesus is Lord, taken from Isaiah 45. So before moving on to what is so plain, that the word is God, consider that there was no need on the part of this God to create anything. They already possessed such glorious and magnificent, full, intimate fellowship. Do We dare not think that somehow God needed to make creation out of some sort of a lack in himself. No, no. Flavel has this rich remark summarized for us from his famous work, The Fountain of Life. Please bear with me with a, a lengthier quotation. He says, uh, Christ's primeval state before his incarnation was of matchless happiness if we consider the persons enjoying and delighting in each other. God is the fountain, ocean, and center of all delights and joys. In your presence there is fullness of joy. You have not experienced joy until you've experienced God. To be wrapped up in the soul and bosom of all delights as Christ was must needs be a state of bliss, transcending understanding. Consider the intimacy, dearness, yea, oneness of those great persons. And the nearer the union, the sweeter the communion. Oh, what matchless delights must flow from such a blessed union. The best of creatures are mixed and debased delights. But the embrace of father and son is a pure delight. No stream flows so purely, no light so unmixed, as father and son embrace with the most holy delight and love. This delight was from everlasting and eternity. It has never suffered one moment's interruption. The overflowing fountain of God's delight and love has never stopped in its course and has never ebbed. Christ was daily his delight, rejoicing always before him. Any comparison falls infinitely short. Jacob was bound up in Benjamin's love, and David's soul was knit to Jonathan. But these are finite and cannot equal the delights between the father and son. The Lord takes pleasure in his saints but not like he does in his son. Thus, what an astonishing act of love was this, for the father to give the delight of his soul for poor sinners. All tongues must pause and falter to express his grace. What an outcry did David make for Absalom. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Yet never did any child lie so close to a parent's heart as Christ to his fathers. And yet, he willingly parted with him to a cursed death for sinners. Christ consented to leave such a bosom for worms as we are. Oh, the heights, depths, lengths, and breadths of unmeasurable love. Christ denied himself for us. That's the fellowship. That's the magnificence. I would just correct that and say he didn't really leave the bosom of the Father, as we're going to see down the line. But this does lead into our final point that Jesus is fully divine. He is fully God. 
as much God as the Father is God. The word was God is the last phrase here. He is the only begotten God in verse 18. The word who was face to face with God was and is in fact God. This is the crescendo of this passage. That's the exclamation point. And the word was God is brought out here. And we see that everywhere in Scripture. We see this very plainly right out of the gate in this rising of a new sun in John 1.1. But we find it all throughout the pages of the Bible. The names of God are applied to Jesus. He is Emmanuel, God with us. The attributes of God are freely applied to Jesus. In him are treasured all, all of the riches of knowledge and understanding and of wisdom. The works of God are applied to him freely. We see in the very next breath that he makes all things. There is nothing not made except for by him. He is a sin qua non of creation, without which nothing. Have you seen anything, felt anything, heard anything, experienced anything? It's from the Son of God, the Word of God. God, the Word. The words of God, the sayings of God are in his lips. He says, you believe in God, believe also in me. Obey me or else face eternal sanctions. These are freely applied to him. And the worship and the devotion to God are applied to him freely. All that God is, that the word, the son of God is. Now the cults, as you probably well know, have interjected an, an interesting theory. And they said that because there's not a definite article here at the end, that it should be translated, and the word was a God. And it's true, there is no definite article. But definite articles function very differently in the Greek language than they do in the English. And if you knew a little bit of Greek, you would know that that's a really bad translation to put the word ah in there. Uh, And to kind of say that by this, he's a lesser deity of some sort. Um, But notice that down in verse 18, no one has seen God at any time. That's also a God. No definite article there either. But they would not be so bold to say that the Father is a God. And if you really are hung up over a definite article, then go over to John chapter 20 and verse 28. When Thomas finally believes that Jesus is risen, as Jesus says to him, go ahead, test me out. Check out the nail prints. It's me. And what does he do? He worships Jesus. And he says, my Lord and my God. Literally in the Greek, the Lord of me. And there's a definite article, the God of me. And if Jesus is just a creature, like the, the greatest angel or even above an angel, but not truly God, how is he receiving worship? You don't worship any but God and God alone. And yet he receives that. So our Jesus of the Bible is clearly called God. Isaiah chapter 9, he is the mighty God. We read that earlier. In Psalm 110, the Lord, Yahweh, said to my Lord, Adonai, the great sovereign one, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. In John 8, when he is speaking about Abraham and Abraham's day, he says, before Abraham, I, before Abraham was, I, what? 
am. Now, he didn't say I was. He could have said, well, I'm a pre-existent angel. I was here from the beginning of time. He doesn't say I was. He uses that name from Exodus chapter 3. And you can bet that the Jews didn't pick up stones because of his bad grammar. He is the I am, you see. He is the I am that walks upon the waters, and only God can do that. In Philippians 2, he is... He is being in the form or having in Greek parlance the qualities. All of the the parts that make God God are his. It's actually a stronger way to say that instead of just coming out that that his being God, he says he is being in the form of God makes it even more. All the attributes that make God God are his. Second Peter, by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. And of course in Hebrews chapter 1, to the Son he says... Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. So not only does a Bible call him God, God himself calls him God, you see. Magnificence, uh, in it, magnificent in its clarity of who the Lord Jesus is in his uh, deity. Jesus said that he who has seen me has seen the Father. To have the Son is to have the Father. The Son is to be honored and trusted as the Father is honored and trusted. Jesus is not the Father. They are distinct, point number two, but they both share and possess fully the entirety of the one perfect infinite deity. We're not tri-theists. We're Trinitarians. So there are not two gods or three gods, but one God, and each person mysteriously possesses the fullness of that infinite, eternal, unchangeable essence. The Father is fully God, the Son fully God, the Spirit fully God. 100% plus 100% plus 100% equals 100%, not three gods. Jesus clearly is spoken of then as our Lord and our God. Now one final point I want to bring out here as we begin to wrap up today, and it's this. Why is he called here in this passage, we've skipped over it until now. In the beginning was the Word. Why is he called the Logos? Why not the Alethes, the truth? He's called the truth in John 14, verse 6. Or why not the power, as in 1 Corinthians chapter 1? Or the wisdom, even. Why not call him? In the beginning was the wisdom. And the wisdom was with God, and the wisdom was God. We might even refer back to Proverbs chapter 8. And some believe there the uh, taking of the attribute of wisdom to be a reference to the Son of God. Well, understand that the word logos, the word here, has the idea of the inner thought. Um, There are several Greek words that speak about um, talking, words, communication, and so forth. And there's a specific word that talks about speech. It's la leo, and you can hear the la 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 in that Greek word. Maybe that's, maybe it's just me making that up. That's how I remembered it in college. La leo is just la 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 la. But logos is the thought. Logos is the reasoning. You and I, when we think, we think in words. And so that's the ideology that's coming out here by the use of the term logos. It's the words on the inside. It's the full thought of God, as it were. It's a Greek term that, that, boy, it really went wonky among Greek philosophers. 
So you got to be careful about saying, because John used this, that if you find it over in Greek thinking, it fits here. That's a really bad thing to do. But surely there's an overlap. The thought of God, the full expression of, uh, of God the Father, puts the match before our little finite minds that Jesus is the full revelation of all that the Father is in every way. Jesus is all the revelation of the Godhead to us in bodily form. And then you have the Hebrew word that perhaps is in mind here, the word debar, which actually includes both the thought and the action in it. It's an action word, just like in Genesis chapter 1. God speaks, and it's not just words in the air. When he speaks, what happens? Great things happen. Not they might happen, they do happen. God said, let there be, and there was. And so that Hebrew word is believed by many to be behind this, as an action word. By the Son, the Father does all things. By the Son, the Father speaks By the Son, the Father acts, everything through him. And with the Spirit, creation, the rule and providence, the salvation, and the completion of all things are found in him. D.A. Carson, in his commentary on the Gospel of John, which, you know, I'll tell you, I've said this before. I'm I'm not going to say it. Just skip it. Get him in trouble. He, quote, he, just, he just borrows so much from F.F. F. Bruce. I, 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 Bruce is smaller, so I go to the smaller one first because it takes less time. And then you go to the bigger one, Carson. I'm going, Carson, you're just quoting Bruce and not crediting him. What are you doing? Well, it's all God's truth in the end, I guess. So he says, quoting Bruce, In short, God's word in the Old Testament is his powerful self-expression in creation, revelation, and salvation. And the personification of the word makes it suitable for John to apply it as a title to God's ultimate self-disclosure, the person of his own son. But if the expression would prove richest for Jewish readers, hearkening back to the Old Testament, It would also resonate in the minds of some readers with an entirely pagan background. In their case, however, they would soon discover that whatever they had understood the term to mean in the past, the author whose work they were then reading was forcing them into fresh thought. We know that the Greeks had real issues with doctrines of creation, how they understood the world, how they understood God. So there's going to have to be a learning curve there. So, this point here of application of the word to us, who was, who was at the beginning, who was with God face-to-face, and who is God, fully God, second person of the Trinity. He is expressive of, as he says here, creation, revelation, salvation. We know that this world was made by the Lord Jesus the Son of God. God made this world. We're going to see this in the next verse. This leads us down into verse 3. All things came into being through him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. We know this through the word of God. And then we are to look to him as the revelation. We cannot know God apart from 
Jesus. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through him. He is the door. Would you know more of God than you must draw near to the word made flesh who has come into this world to do that very thing and to open wide heaven's gates? And that's the third point is salvation. There is salvation in no other. There is no other God to turn to. Where are you going to come up with a God like the God of the Bible? Look at all that he does in creation. Look at all that he does in life. Look at the magnificent handiwork that surrounds you every day, which, Lord willing, we'll get tonight. So, see you then. In the meantime, let us praise God for the, for the word of Christmas, that the word came down to us to give us salvation full and free. And he is bringing us to a new creation. John borrows from Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God. And he points now to the word of God, the word who is God. But ultimately, this is pointing to a new beginning because there's coming a new heavens and a new earth. Am I a part of that? Only through the incarnate one, the word of Christmas. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your mercies to us. What wonderful love is this, that you would not spare your own son, but deliver him up for us all. How then will you not freely give us all things if you have uh, given us the very best, the person of your son? Lord Jesus, we love you and thank you. We bless you and bow our knees before you. We heartily acclaim you only Lord and Savior. There is no other, no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved. And we bless you, Lord, that your light does save. It breaks through the darkness of our sins, calls us into your marvelous light. Oh, what a light is yours indeed, showing us first who you are, showing us what we are, and then calling us to yourself powerfully. We ask, Lord, your grace to be upon this series as we meditate together upon these high riches that are found in the opening lines of John's Gospel. May we be better men and women for it. May we be better new men and women for it. For, Lord, you've come into this world not to make men better, but to make them new. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.